Hey guys, real quick before we jump into this next episode, uh, I want to discuss something with you. Uh, I made a decision a couple of years ago not to bombard this podcast with tons of ads or just bombard you with sponsorship. Nothing would drive me more crazy when listening to other podcasts when the first five minutes were nothing but ads. Um, So I worked hard not to do that to you. I try to keep the ads to a minimum and uh, and keep the, the podcast as streamlined as possible. So do me a favor. Go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Buy yourself a bag. Up your shooting game. You're going to thank me. And if you're not a rifle hunter, go buy yourself a glassing pad. Your butt is going to thank me after spending hours behind the glass. They're awesome. Uh, if you use promo code John Stallone, all one word, you'll save 20%. Um, and lastly, please, I know you heard me say it, iTunes, Podbean, go leave us a review. I need the feedback. The, the ratings help me reach more people, and it helps me keep this free. So do me a favor. Check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. And go leave us a review. Thank you. Let's roll into this next episode. Hi, welcome to the interviews with the Hunting Masters, brought to you by Phoenix Shooting Bags. Uh, today we are going to talk a little bit, uh, not a little bit, a lot about uh, what to do with your game meat. Um, you know, just some ideas on you know recipes and different other um aspects of caring for the meat and so on and so forth i have my good friend hank shaw with us on the phone uh and we are on the phone today so i'm going to apologize in advance if the sound quality isn't a hundred percent uh we had a little bit of internet uh internet uh, difficulty this morning so we uh we jumped on this um so without further ado what's up man how you doing good to good to talk to you again it's been a while I know. We, I mean, we've we've texted back and forth and emailed back and forth a bunch in the, but it's it's been a while since we actually talked on the phone. I know, I know. I'm it's, I'm missing Arizona already. Yeah, well, soon enough, man. It's going to be here. We we got our we got our javelina hunt coming up. Uh, going to have a nice camp going, and uh, that should be fun. A fun week. For yeah, sure. and even before that, I'll be uh, in the I'll be there for the Merns Quail opener in December down in the uh, Patagonia area. Nice, nice. Quail opened, uh, right, uh, the rest of the state opened up for quail, regular quail, like four days ago or something like that. I think it was the 15th. It's got to be a little hot there, though, right? It, no, man, it was 55 degrees this morning. No way, I went really? Out and scouted. Yeah, I went out and scouted for my daughter's, uh, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, by 8, eight o'clock in the morning, it's 75, but, um, you know, y- that uh, and it depends where you're at too. If you hit some of the higher country, it it'll stay cooler quite a bit longer too. But down by me in Scottsdale area, it was, um, you know, it was fairly cool until I got I I got back from scouting here about a, uh, an hour ago. Um, so just a little quick trip, and I was just uh, you know north of north of Scottsdale looking for deer gotcha. for my daughter's hunt so um yeah it's not too bad my uh my uncle went out the other day quail he got i think he shot his limit wow yeah um i don't like quail hunting this time of year because snakes but 
It's also kind of hard on the dogs, too. I mean, my, my buddies who hunt oh, quail in Arizona. You know, oh, you don't hunt with a dog? No. Well, one, I, I, I have a Vizsla, but I never trained him for dogs, even though he's quite, he's quite birdie. I trained him to be a shed dog. Um, so. <laughs> You're such a big game hunter, man. <laughs> you yeah, have, well, you have an excellent you gun dog time? that's like, it's a shed dog now. That's, that's, that's hilarious. Yeah. It's like that ad. Like, yeah, that's an okay use of his abilities. It's like, it's not really my, uh, you know, like it doesn't get my motor running, like shooting birds. I Don't get me wrong. I enjoy, you know, it's more about the, camaraderie of going hanging out with the with the guys and uh to go shoot birds for me like it's more like the the bullshit with everybody than the actual <laughs> bang bang pow pow of it so like we're totally um, opposite man. man like i love i love hunting deer but once as soon as i shoot that deer or maybe a second deer i'm like whoo good now i can spend the whole rest of the the season hunting birds yep yep <laughs> I know we've we had this uh, this debate uh, when you came down to shoot your coos there that time. I was like, me and Shane were looking at each other. We're like, thanks a fucking crazy motherfucker. <laughs> rather shoot rather shoot quail than deer. Oh, yeah, I know. I know really. a lot of guys like you. Yeah, I know a lot of guys like you. I I used to have a, a doctor friend of mine. Man, this guy would spend so much money, travel everywhere to go wing shooting. Like, he would get so excited about it. Like, I, you, you know, what it is for me is, like, there's, you look at one bird, it's the same as another bird. I mean, yeah, you could get some little, you know, different colorations and blah, 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 stuff like that. But there's nothing, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, like, super unique between, you know, quail A and quail B, you know. It's... That's Where? true within quail. However, um, my counter-argument is that the flavors available um, in birds and small game are wildly different from all the flavors available in big game. In big game, you pretty much have three or four major flavors. You've got all the deer and antelope pretty much taste the same. Yeah, there's differences, but it's pretty much the same. You've got, right. you've got bear, you've got big cats, and you've got pigs. And... Mm-hmm. So you you know you've, you're much more limited to, to use that hackneyed phrase flavor profiles than you do with say like grouse for example every different species of grouse tastes different and that's a that's to me that's super cool I mean you're right quail in general they're yeah they're they, the differences between the quails are like the differences between the deer which is pretty bright yep I don't know it all depends on what they're eating I I, I find that like you shoot a buck in the Midwest that's been eating our corn and stuff. He tastes way different than some ruddy old mule deer that's been eating sagebrush and twigs for his whole life. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. But, but I'll uh, tell you what, that coos deer that you and I shot, that coos uh-huh. deer is the first actual deer. The antelope are a little different. But it's the first actual deer I've ever shot where the fat did not turn waxy. You know what? I've had other people tell me that too. Like, I, I don't know. I'm so good about trimming it all off that I don't like really. Well, you uh, I mean that that deer we shot? I mean, it was so fat. I'm like, I couldn't not keep it. You know? I mean, yeah. Wow, I gotta at least try. You know? And you never know until you go, right? So I was expecting it to get all waxy like a midwestern whitetail, and it was just not. Yeah. 
I made chorizo out of uh, 100% deer, and it was fantastic. See, that's that's cool. I've uh, I know most people add pork fat too, but um, I normally do that. I actually add beef fat. Ah, uh, you're in the beef fat I, camp. Well, and, and and mainly because my body doesn't do well with pork. I'm kind mm-hmm. of, God, no pork and no garlic. It. What kind of Italian are you? Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, well, I, so I can eat. I can eat pork, but if I eat pork past like lunchtime, I'm going to pay for it all night long. I'm going to take it so sweat. I'm not going to. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. I got so many stupid. At least you're in Sonora, right? So, I mean, if you're in Sonora, yeah. you can enjoy pretty much all of the cool Mexican food because it's, you know, that's it's all beef-based culture there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but um, I, I found that I almost kind of, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's just because I've gotten used to it, but I almost found like I like it better now. But, because uh, my, my friend's, uh, Back east, uh, gentleman by the name of Dominic Papandrea. He uh, he knows how to do like all the traditional Calabresia sausages and yeah. soprasats yeah. and all that stuff. And so he do made I, me, too. I figure you did. He made me, uh, man. He made me some soprasat with it with the beef fat, and um, he made some out of elk meat and some out of deer meat, both with that. And then, man, it was like. I swear to God, I felt like I was eating something from, you know, that came straight from Italy, and I didn't know that there was no pork in that at all. Yeah, you know, practice, wow. practice, practice is really, it's, it's, it's like anything, and we can talk about that when we get into the, to this podcast, but there is no substitute for repetition. Yeah. That's for sure. Well, I don't know. There's... there's there's if if your if your repetition is is a is a slippery slope because I feel like so I get into this conversation with practice when people practice archery and stuff like that um, you know it, it's it's perfect practice perfect practice gives you perfect results you know not not necessarily uh, you know if you keep doing the same thing over and over again and not doing the right. <laughs> the right thing from the get-go. Oh, I see. It's not going to be It's not going to Very true. Yeah. Well, yeah. similarly, like with shotgunning, um, I tell everybody who wants to get better at shooting ducks to go to the skeet range, but don't shoot right. skeet in the way that everybody else shoots skeet. What you use, you hold your gun down, and you don't tell your partner when to pull. Your partner just pulls whenever your partner wants to pull, so you're surprised right. by the clay, and you've got to lift your gun and kill it. Yeah. And yeah. that's perfect practice that's for shooting more ducks. Life-like. It's more yep, life-like. exactly. And the archers are always like, "Yeah, I'm going to shoot my shoot my arrows at this target 40 yards away, straight away." I'm like, "Sure, great. Good luck to getting that shot in the in the wild." I mean, it happens, but it's not that often. Right. Well, yeah, but not standing up in a perfect archer's tee on flat ground. Right. <laughs> you know, you might be able to get 40 yards, but you know. It's because you're going to be on your knees and crawl through a bush and on some they crazy had slope. Yeah. All over your yeah. place, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, no, yeah, I, I preach that stuff all the time. It's always about practice and lifelike scenarios. So, and I would imagine that cooking uh, is, is, is same thing. You know, you got, you got to 
you've got to find the things that that work and and practice the things that work and don't just you know don't don't be afraid to experiment but right uh, well a great example you know. in cooking is the seal and the juices myth so everybody yeah whether it's grilling or pan searing is like well you got to seal in the juices well that's horseshit that doesn't actually happen it doesn't there's no such thing as sealing in the juices what you're doing is you're creating a Maillard reaction. You're creating that browning, which human beings are hardwired to enjoy. And mm -hmm. what you're doing is you're making that object better, whether it's a, uh, a crust of bread or a sear on a duck breast or a sear on a, with a bark on a brisket. All of that we're hardwired to really, really like. And it doesn't seal in juices, but you do it. But, to, but it's good practice anyway. You're just doing it for the wrong reason. Right, right. So um, before I had you on, I uh, put up a bunch of posts on social media and uh, asked people to send me in questions. They yeah, like I like a stump the chump, huh? Questions. <laughs> <laughs> One or two of these, I, I, I believe you answered the last time I had you on a couple of years back. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll address them anyway because I, I don't sure. remember if uh, – how you answer. I, actually, I do remember the one that I'm thinking of. But anyway, so uh, let me jump into this. Uh, you know what? Real quick, just give me a quick rundown about yourself because just in case nobody knows, uh, the, sure, know, people sure. don't know who you are. So I run the website Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, which is huntgathercook.com, and it's the largest source of wild food recipes on the Internet in any language. I've been running it since 2007, and in that time, I have printed, I've published four cookbooks. Um, I'm at work on, an, on two other books as we speak, and nice. um, I, uh, I'm all over social media, it's Hunt Cook, I've been on some TV shows, and lots of radios and podcasts and all that kind of good stuff. So I've basically, if it's wild game or wild food cooking in general, uh, if I don't know the answer, I know where to find it. Awesome. Um, so let's, uh, this, this is a great question. I like it, and I, this is why I put it at the top. Um, tell me a bit about how the passion for hunting and cooking came into your life. It's cooking first, hunting second. So the way I get lumped a lot with, uh, with Stephen Ranella, and the difference between me and Steve is that Steve is a hunter who cooks, and I am a cook who hunts. So the, the difference in emphasis uh, actually has real, real ramifications on the ground. So, mm -hmm. for example, I grew up as the, I'm the last of four, and there's a seven-year gap between me and my older sister. So that seven-year gap allowed my mom and my stepdad, and I grew up in New Jersey. So we're, we, we're, we're both from the same general galactic area of, of the United States. And... Right. My mom and my stepdad really like to eat good food. So with only the one kid, I, they could take me along. And since I didn't raise ruckus in restaurants, I got to go along to a lot of nice restaurants as a very young kid, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. And so at those restaurants, I was always the kid who would order the weird thing on the menu. And at the time, this is, you know, 1979, 1980, 81, that kind of time, I would... You know, it would be French restaurants mostly, or really good Italian, or really good French, or really good Portuguese. And there's always some sort of game on the menu, like rabbit, or venison, or squab, or duck, or goose, or something like that. And I would always, always, always order it. 
So my first memories of game and you know are all as a special thing. Like it's a treat. It's this unusual thing that I get to eat very rarely and I really, really enjoyed it. So that kind of set the game in my head. So beyond that, mom, um, you know, mom basically, she's an old school mom. She's born in the 30s and she thought it was very important for us to know the names of things. Mm-hmm. She is the, the niece of a, of a relatively well-known naturalist from the 20s. And so her uncle would teach her about the wild plants and wild animals and things like that. So she passed that on to her kids. So knowing what plants you can eat and what plants you can't eat was important. Knowing the picking blueberries or, or beach peas or digging clams. That's all of that stuff is part of our family's DNA from the time I, could, I was born. So nice. cooking and eating has always been, you know, it's, it's always been a, a major part of, of what I do. And I started cooking myself as a teenager when mom, she was, a, she was in sales at the time. And so she was working longer and longer hours. And the, 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 the seminal moment, I don't even know if this actually happened. I mean, I know it happened, but I, like, I don't know if it was like this one, like, eureka moment, but it's the memory that sticks in my head. You know, when you get older, things get right. foggy. Yeah. Was she, she would burn the bacon, and I hate burned bacon. I hate raw bacon, but I hate burned bacon more. It was like black, right. and like, I can't be eating this. It's just awful. Because she's just busy. She's got to get, get ready for work and all that kind of stuff. So like, you know what, Mom? Right. I'm going to make breakfast. And so that's, that was definitely my sophomore year in high school, so I was 15. And then it kind of went from there. And then after that, I started cooking more and more for myself. I realized very early that it was a great way to impress girls. You know, if you can cook a, oh, yeah. you know, a nice meal in a dorm room, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a successful operation. <laughs> yep. yep. And, um, and then I started working in, in restaurants as a cook. So my first ever restaurant, I was, a, uh, I was a dishwasher at an Ethiopian restaurant. And, yes, they have food, and, yes, it's good. And, uh, you know, as many, many restaurant cooks have the same story, the sous chef quit and didn't show up. So the owner tapped me on the shoulder and said, you're, you're, you're cooking tonight. And I became her sous chef for a couple of years and I learned all kinds of Ethiopian cooking. And then I worked at a couple of their restaurants. And, and then I left professional cooking for a long time to become a newspaper reporter. And, uh, I, but I stayed a student of food. And flash forward to 18 years ago, I started hunting basically kind of on a whim. Um, mm-hmm. I was working as a newspaper reporter in, in St. Paul, Minnesota, at the Pioneer Press, and my best friend there was the outdoor writer. And he, he you know, we'd been fishing the whole time because I'd fished since I was a little kid. And then hunting season started to roll around, and he said, yeah, you know, I'm going to go hunting. Do you want to come with? And, you know, I, I thought about it. And I said, yeah, you know, I would. And... What was really fascinating about it was I, I'm a very good fisherman. Uh, I fish commercially. I've you know fished recreationally my whole life, and and, I, and anybody here listening to this knows that a good fisherman is not just someone with a rod and a reel in their hand. It's not just someone who's hauling a net. It's where do you put the net? It's where do you put your rods? So the baits, it's timing, it's tides, it's all these things. So I knew that you can. I know how to read water. Well, my friend Chris knew how to read land. And I'd never really mm-hmm. seen that before. And it felt like closing a circle. And it was this, this combined with the fact that it was an amazing 
end product, you know, pheasants and ducks and venison and all kind of stuff. But the, the ability to be a more complete human, you know, whether it's the water or now the land and then with plants, it felt like I was awake for the first time. Awesome. That's awesome. Very, Sorry, very really different. But <laughs> no, man. I mean, but but that's the story. So that's the you know that's the that's the way you came about, and um, which is actually great because it leads me into this next question. If you weren't a wild game chef or you weren't a chef, do you still think you would hunt? Uh, I don't know that I would, because I mean the eating aspect of it is so important. It's not everything, but mm-hmm. I, I guess if you're saying if I would, did not have professional training, would I still hunt? Yeah, absolutely. But Because you don't need yeah. professional training to be a good cook. But if you're right. asking if I didn't like to eat it, no, I wouldn't hunt. Yeah. Well, no, I don't think if it's, no. Because I don't think I would hunt if I didn't like to eat it either. Yeah. Uh, only because I, 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 like, I don't shoot coyotes. It'd feel wasteful. Yeah, absolutely. And I know guys, you know, especially I, I, if you're living in the south or or in the or in the east, where you can kill like twelve whitetail a, de- a year. Yeah, your hunting uh-huh. becomes a little different in the sense that you know you fill your own freezer, but then you end up hunting to fill other people's freezer, and there's there's some yeah. serious value to that too. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I end up giving away a lot of meat. I bet you're you know you're primarily a big yeah. game hunter. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then the main reason is because my family. It's hard. It's hard for me to get them to eat it. So really? I'm the only person consuming. It's um, you know, and I make I make things that like delicious. And my my wife will even say, "Oh, you know, that's that tastes so good," but she can't like wrap her head around that it didn't come from a store. And I don't know why, but it's and it's 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 kind of frustrating too because she has she likes to hunt, and she'll always eat a piece of meat. Uh, she doesn't love to hunt. She likes it, and I think it's more because she gets to hang out with me, and she likes to be in the outdoors and whatnot. But, um, you know, she'll always have meat from whatever it is that we harvested together or she got on her own. And But it's not something that she's going to do for, every, you know, every meal. That's some really I, interesting it's, societal... It's, it's, mental frustrating. blinders, you know? It's yeah, frustrating. Frustrating as fuck to me right now, to be honest with you. Um, but it's interesting I because, about, I mean, it I sounds like she really knows that it's me. mental and not taste-wise. And then, yeah. But, you know, then oh, how yeah. do you get over it, you know? Yeah, exactly. So my kids will have it, but my kids are freaking picky no matter what. doesn't matter, <laughs> you know. They're the kids that they'll say, you know, I love pancakes, and then the next morning they'll say, I hate pancakes, I don't want pancakes, uh, I hate them, you know, so they drive me freaking insane. It doesn't, I don't know what the hell, what the hell to feed them, you know, it's a constant battle. You feed them pancakes. Um, I, 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 yeah, I guess. And teach them the value of consistency. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I've been telling my wife for, for years. I, I blame it all on her, I'm like, it's because you ask them what they want for breakfast and you ask them what they want for lunch. My, my mother never asked me shit. She's like, here, eat this or you don't eat, you know? Oh, yeah. My mom, my mom went so far as to set the timer. Like if there was something particularly awful and I just was pushing it around on the plate, mom would get so mad she would set a timer for, I don't know, X amount of minutes. 
And if I didn't eat it, or I even eat it, she would, it was a negotiation, so she would like put half of it, like separate half of it, and like, you need to eat that before the timer's over, otherwise, you know, you're going to see that <laughs> food for the rest of your life. Yeah. Like, that'll oh, put the fear yeah. of God in you. Yeah, my, 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 my sister was a real picky eater, and my parents used to, she used to sit there for an hour after everybody was already done, you know, and finally, I guess it worked, because she's pretty good now. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have to say, mom's uh, mom's pea soup still leaves scars, and her meatloaf was a war crime. <laughs> uh, I was lucky. My mom was a was uh, I, there really wasn't much that my mom made that I didn't like. I wasn't a big fan of broccoli rob um, and oh, stuff I like that. Broccoli. But, I'm still but not. the kids aren't supposed to like broccoli rob. It's bitter. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. That you know. Certain fish that I didn't like as a kid too, but uh, and I still don't like it. I never grew to like it. Um, but uh, like I can't do salmon unless it's sushi. I could do sushi salmon, but I can't eat. You don't even like smoked salmon? salmon? Oh, smoked salmon. Yeah, I like lox. I could do lox. Yeah, but which is crazy, you know? You would think that. No, like, it's not crazy. Like people well, have hangups. I mean, I have them. You have them. We all have them. Well, like just, I had a girlfriend who uh, I had a girlfriend who to me a salmon. Sorry. Well, salmon yeah. can be uber fishy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I will tell you as now as a commercial salmon fisherman, uh, our salmon is not because of how we treat it on board. Mm-hmm. So if you buy Costco sockeye, for example, which is pretty lots mm-hmm. of people do, that's Bristol Bay sockeye salmon. So Bristol Bay sockeye salmon is netted in huge numbers, huge numbers, and it's treated right. pretty okay. But it's not, it's not bled. It's not, you know, a lot of them aren't even, are sold in the round of the processor, which gives them hours to get fishier. What we do with all our fish is we, every fish that comes out of the net, we'll bleed it on the spot. And then when it's dead and bled, we head it, gut it, take the kidney out, which is that black line in the, against the spine, and then we pressure bleed mm-hmm. it. So we get all of the blood out and then it goes on in sea ice, so 27 degrees slurry. And so you can cook my salmon in your house, and it will not smell like salmon because I, I, nobody likes that salmon smell. But it's, it's all in processing. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense because deer and everything else is the same way. If you, you know, screw around with a deer out in the field and, you, you know, don't do the right thing, when it gets back, you get that quote-unquote gamey taste. Or, you mm-hmm. know, if it's been handled properly, it tastes way, way better. Elk's um, even worse because the, the thermal inertial, the thermal inertia in elk is, is for real. I mean, they're oh, so they're big. Oh, so dense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like quartering is, is required like as fast as possible. Yep. Yep. For sure. Yeah, I, I, I realized that uh, in 2017, that was the first time I had to have, leave an elk lay overnight. Um, and because it, it was just where he fell, it was real dangerous. And I was like, I'm not. And I left the uh, I left Shane on the other side of the mountain without the truck and without and without anything. Um, and I wanted to get back to him, so I tied him off, and so he wouldn't keep flying down the hill there. And uh, I uh, I came back the next morning. You know, it was we had 30 degree nights and 12, 12 or 30 degree days and 20 something degree nights. So I thought it'd be fine, but 
it was still steaming hot in the morning when we got there at 7 a.m. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty profound. I mean, uh, the early season moose hunts in Alaska are like that too, where like all hands on deck, get to it as soon as possible, otherwise you've wrecked this whole big giant animal. Yep, yep. Um, so one of the questions we got regarding venison is actually kind of a vague question. Average temp for venison and recommended for fowl. What, uh, average temperature? What, what do you, yeah. What, it's what it's you kind of what you want. I mean, I know people who really, really love super rare venison. I don't. Uh, I like medium rare, mm-hmm. which is about 130, 135 internal. So, but that's the um, tender cuts. Right. You know, if yeah, you're, you're not going to serve us. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, so, so a deer is, you, you think of the, the top and back of a deer and then the front and bottom of the deer as two different things. Mm-hmm. So the front of the deer is primarily the neck, the shoulder, and then if you tip underneath it, the shanks. All of those need to be cooked slow and low, just like, you know, you would brisket or anything, you know, in, you know, in the beef world because there's a lot of connective tissue. They're all muscles that work very, very hard. And then, you know, you're just not going to really be able to get away with it at low temperatures. Sure, you could mm-hmm. sous vide it for like two days or whatever, and you can kind of get there, but that's just, it's just weird. Like every time I've eaten that, it's just weird. So it's much better crock pot or Dutch oven or, or just slow and low. Mm-hmm. But the top mm-hmm. and back of the deer, you're talking about the loins, you're talking about the tenderloins, you're talking about the hind legs. So the hind legs, if you separate the, the roasts, you know, so you basically mm-hmm. take... And you take the, you, you debone the back leg and then you use your fingers to separate the various roasts and then use your knife sparingly to just, you know, finish them off. You'll be left with single muscle roasts with very little connective tissue inside them. And those really do mm-hmm. lend themselves to roasting medium, you know, like 135, 140 internal. And those are fantastic that way. Yeah, you could pot roast a hind leg. It, it, it works, but it's not nearly as good as a pot roasted shoulder or neck. Sure. Yeah, see, I've never had hind that wasn't hind quarter stuff that wasn't, uh, you know, like a crock potty or, oh, that's not true. I've had, like, braised, you know, but still, that's a slow and low process. Right, right. I mean, by the, so I, I developed a smoked venison recipe for hind leg roasts that works really, really well, and it's effectively, so California's only contribution to the barbecue world is tri-tip. It's Santa Maria Barbecue from San Luis Obispo. And it's, it's basically the trick with that is you, you're taking a, a tri-tip, which is a whole muscle roast, and you've got a spice rub and, and, or a marinade, depending on what you, what you want to do. It's usually a spice rub. And then your goal is to smoke it to an internal temperature of medium, so about 140 after it rests, as slow as possible. So you, you know, how do you get to 140 as slow as possible? And that's the trick with venison because... You will not really ever get a pulled pork effect with venison because it just won't it just won't work. Um, right. But you can you can not do enough. this other thing with the hind legs and it's amazing. Right. As for you know your other question, the other part of the question was fowl. So yeah. red meat birds you treat exactly like deer, exactly. You you should never think of a red meat bird as if it were a a bird. In the kitchen they're really not birds. And the birds 
in the kitchen, ducks, geese, doves, pigeons, sharp-tailed grouse, they're all, they all should be treated more like, like beef. So the breasts are your steaks, and the legs and wings are your brisket. So the thing that people do have problems with is, so, oh, yeah, so I've got this nice mallard or this nice Canada goose, and I want to roast it like a store-bought. And it doesn't really work that way because they work very hard. And if you, if you roast to the, where the legs are great, which is about 165, 170 degrees internal, well, you, the best, you know, best, your, your breast meat is best at 130 or 130 or 140 tops, right? So with a chicken or any light meat bird like a pheasant or a quail, you're looking for an internal of 150 to 155 in the breast and about 160, 165 in the legs. You can, you can finesse that. That's only about a 10-degree difference between breast to leg and a white meat bird. But in a mm-hmm. red meat bird, you're talking about a 30 to 40-degree difference, and you cannot finesse that. Mm-hmm. So unless it's a small bird, like teal, all roast whole, uh, doves I, I grill a lot, pigeons I grill a lot, you know, those kind of things, you, will, you can get away with it because their legs aren't very tough anyway. You cannot get away with that on a goose or a mallard or, or an old sharp tail. Right. Okay. That uh, gives me some food for thought. I, I haven't really done much fowl hunting in a while, um, only because I know you and I haven't discussed this uh, personally before, but I only get so many get out of jail free days, uh, and and I <laughs> like we were like we were talking earlier. If I had to choose between going to shoot ducks or going to shoot a deer, I'm going to go shoot a deer. But um, yeah, the last last time I actually got it to shoot, I, I went and I and I got a tundra swan. But where'd uh, you go? Um. It was actually here in Arizona, and I don't know why they were here, but they're here. Are you sure? Um, yeah. Because I don't know that you can. No, it was. I checked because I was. I had seen them the day before. Um, hmm. and you're, I know you're you can hunt them in Nevada. One. You're allowed to shoot one, or you were. Then. Okay. This is going back to Jesus, like 15 years ago now. Oh, uh, okay. About okay. the last time I went. But um, anyway, I had checked because I called a buddy of mine um, with the fishing game and checked because I had seen them. We had put out a set and, of ducks, and I saw them fly over, and I was like, oh, man. Um, you know, and I didn't know what it, at first it, what it was, and I had asked him what it was, and that's what he told me it was. Um, and I tried to do it like uh, like – Chinese style, almost like a oh, like Peking duck, duck type. Yeah, I've actually I, I, hunted swans a couple mis- times. Fell mis- oh, it's mis- super hard. At it. <laughs> Peking duck is super hard. Like you can do it with a wild bird, but the trick is you almost have to be in California or Texas or Louisiana, someplace where where the birds are unusually fat. So where I live in Northern California, we've got we have like morbidly obese pintail ducks. You know, often with there's sometimes you can get pintail ducks with a layer of fat under the skin as thick as your pinky, and 
And so those birds you can do the Chinese Peking duck with, but it's all really, really a bad idea for anything that's, that's skinny. Just not going to work. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, next question we got sent in was, if you're simply grilling, I'm assuming like we're talking, okay, so, so, so steaks, venison steaks or elk steaks, um, are you like a, just a simple seasonings guy or what's your, what's your school of thought on those? It depends on the steak. So if it's backstrap or tenderloin, I'm a very, I, I keep it very simple. My favorite you know, backstrap or tenderloin is salt, little coat of oil, and, you know, and then when it's done, when it's resting, uh, I'll grind pepper over it, and then a little, when I serve it, a little splash of citrus. That's it. The, you know, the, I, I cook over either charcoal or wood, so you get that added flavor to it as well. And, and the one trick I do with venison steaks or elk steaks or whatever is I don't actually stake them. So okay. the biggest problem that I see with cooking venison steaks or elk steaks or whatever, now elk you can get away with it because elk you can create a steak that's Make a good you know, two fingers thick and it's wide and, and so you can cook it a bit more like a, like a beef steak. But the problem with venison backstrap is it's, it's usually not very wide. So you create these little medallions. Mm -hmm. And when you're cooking both sides of a medallion like that, you're opening so much surface area to heat that it's very difficult to cook that steak perfectly you know, to the center. It's not impossible, mm -hmm. and people do it, but it's, it's much easier to take a length of backstrap. So maybe cut your backstrap into foot-long increments, or however right. long you think, and grill that, and then let that rest, and then, and then slice it as medallions there. So you get two things. One, it's way prettier way prettier. Mm -hmm. People eat with your eyes and, you know, if you say you don't, you're lying because you just don't realize mm -hmm. you do, but you do. So you, you do, get that really beautiful pink color and everyone's like, oh, this is going to be great. And second, it's easier to cook it to temperature. It's much easier to, to get the temperature that you want on a, on a kind of a log of uh, backstract than individual steaks. And you can also roll the whole log when it's resting in whatever spice mixture you really like. By the way, don't do your spice mixture before it hits fire because it will burn, and, and especially things like paprika or any chilies get super bitter. And the okay, time so to put all your... Half. Exactly, exactly. Like, well, it's so it's cooked with salt, and then as soon as it comes off the grill when you're ready to, to let it rest, then you roll it in whatever your spice mix of your, that makes you happy, and then let it rest with that spice mix on it, and then slice and serve. Nice. See, I just learned something. I, it's so much better. I, I, I'll definitely have to try that. Um, yeah. Chili hates being burned. Always. Okay. And I use a lot of chili. A lot of different chili powders. So I have like five different ones at the house that I like to mm -hmm. play with all the time. Um, let's talk about smoking. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, I'm sure it depends on what meat you're doing but the question says big game but let's pick uh let's say elk since we just came out of elk season or you could say deer too because we're going into deer season what what type of wood do you prefer to use to smoke big game 
This is a hilarious question I get on a weekly basis. It's just bizarre. Mm -hmm. It's really bizarre. Like, it doesn't matter, ladies and gentlemen. It just doesn't matter. Like, the only thing that matters in terms of wood choice is don't use pine unless you want a, a really serious, piney, slightly turpentiney smell to it. Right. Har- any hardwood works. Any hardwood works. Corn cobs works. You know, everything is a, a slightly different flavor, and there are a few smokes that are a little bit heavier than others. But you're talking nuances on the edges. If you live in the Southwest, smoke over mesquite. If you live in Texas, you can either use mesquite or oak or pecan. You know, if use what you're... Use what you have around you. I mean, fruit woods are always good. If you're in the Northwest, people smoke over alder and willow all the time. So it's, it really doesn't matter that much. I mean, it's, you know, I know it's blasphemy for some people. Like, oh, I only smoke over blah, blah, blah. Like, really? Really? Mm-hmm. Really? Like, really, you're going to be able to taste the difference between pecan and oak? Maybe a little, kind of, sort of, but your guests won't. You know, so right. the short version of that answer is always hardwood of some sort. And if you are if you are unsure, go with fruit woods of any kind. Yeah, like apples and stuff like that's usually apple and cherry are very common. Yeah. And out here in California yeah. we've got like old orchards of everything, so you know, you see people smoking over nectarines and peaches and all that kind of stuff. So. That's pretty cool. Um, I'm trying to word this question here. Super vague. Give me like a rule of thumb about pairing wines with gay meat. So the rule of thumb is always white with white, red with red. So that's that's the general rule, and it can be broken in a number of ways. Um, but so with venison, let's stick with big game for a minute. So with venison, venison and elk, you know, pronghorn, all of those will take your big, big bad reds. You know, you're, if, you're, if you want to whip out the Petit Verdot or the Chateauneuf de Popland or the California Cab or, you know, a Barolo or a Barbaresco, your big game is where you do it. So you're, those huge reds are a little bit much for, say, duck, and yeah. definitely a bit much for any white meat. So you wouldn't necessarily want your big Napa cab with pork. So the reasoning behind that is it's not just tradition. I mean, the tradition's there for a reason. That these wines are very heavily structured, and they're big, complicated. So they, uh, oh, God, was the, um, there's an Italian word for it, for it basically means to contemplate over your wine. I can't remember the exact phrase for it, but oh, meditazione. Um, it's a vino di meditazione, and so the so it's basically those wines that like you sit there and look at the look at the glass, you know, because there's so much going on. That's fine with a big red meat. It's not fine with say quail. Right. So it's overpowering. Um, it's overpowering. Yeah. So uh, another way to go is if you're spicy, you know, like if you're doing chilies. Mm-hmm. A little bit of sweeter wine is going to be what you want. So in the case of red meat, you're looking at Zinfandel. Uh, you're, right. In the case of white meat, you're looking at um, Riesling is always, always, always a good choice. Riesling and Zinfandel are always great grilling wines, period, always. No one will ever you know, make fun of you for bringing a Riesling or a Zinfandel to a barbecue. 
But other options would be a Viognier uh, on the white side, a Roussanne on the white side. Those are both uh, Cote d'Aron blends. Mm -hmm. um, and on the red side, other than Zin, and here's another tip on Zins. Old Zins are bad Merlots. You want young Zins. Zin is not a, a grape that ages super well. I mean, it's perfectly fine if it's 10 years old, but it's not going to be Zin. It'll be mm, sort of red wine flavor. That fruity mm -hmm. awesomeness of Zinfandel is really, it lasts only about five years. Interesting. Yeah, it's, so if, you, if, if you're listening to this and you have a, a, that Zin that you've been waiting to break out, you probably missed it. <laughs> now your Barolo, so, you can keep Barolos till your kids are old enough to vote. I mean, they last forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta go check my wine collection. I think I got a couple of zins in there from <laughs> a while back. Honey, I know what we're drinking tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah. cracked out a, a Spanish Rioja that was from the late mm -hmm. '90s, just a couple of weeks ago. Oh my God, this is amazing. oh wow. So certain wines, you know, Spanish Rioja. Um, Bordeaux, Napa Cabs, Chateauneuf de Pop, which is from the Cote d'Aron, uh, Barolo, Barbaresco. Some of these wines really, really age well. And the, the white Bordeaux, which is a Chardonnay blend from France, that and the white Rioja, those are your two whites that age for years and years and years and years. Gotcha. Um... So this is actually the question that I know you and I talked about last time we had you on because I remember you telling me a story about guys in Texas. But so the question is, does washing game meat with water after kill ruin the hunt, ruin or hurt the flavor of the game meat? Sort of. Um, so washing, no, because if you wash and pat dry, you're fine. The, the leaving game wet over 40 degrees is a, a recipe for bacterial disaster. Mm -hmm. So there's this other tradition, in the, yeah, we talked about it, but you, know, it's, you seem to see it a lot in Texas, is um, they will soak, soak big game meat in ice water. So at least they're keeping it below 40 degrees, but the, it's so weird. It's like, I don't understand it. it. It washes out the meat and turns it almost white, and yep. it removes virtually all the flavor of, of the meat. And I guess if that's what you're shooting for, it's, it's safe from a food safety perspective, but ugh, God, no, no, a thousand times no. I mean, same thing with brining ducks. So I have lots of friends who are good chefs who always brine their ducks. And, you know, I'll meet you halfway. Yes, if you're shooting sea ducks or shooting scoters or, or scop or divers. bluebills or golden eye. Yeah, divers. They can stand, they're very strong, dark meat birds, and they can stand a little bit of brine. But why would you ever brine a pintail or a mallard or a wood duck or a green wing teal? I mean, there's just no reason. There's just, there's no off flavor in them at all. And the, the singular reason for brining a, a, a waterfowl is to make the flavor milder because they already have mm -hmm. enough moisture in them that they're not going to dry out. So the, the other reason to brine is to keep things moister, and that really plays into effect with white meat birds like quail and pheasant and blue grouse and, and, and also with pork as well. Mm -hmm. You know, brining wild pigs is a great idea. Yeah, I have a buddy of mine that does this brine. 
and before he smokes, like at first I thought that was seem like counterintuitive because you're when you're smoking you're trying to get like I don't know you're kind of it's almost like a drying process, isn't it? Really smoking, sort of. So what was he smoking that he's brining first? Um, uh, what cut? Pork? I, I think it's the, the yeah, it's pork. Yeah. Yeah, so you brine pork to help it retain moisture. So the brining process, by the way, if you put flavors in your brine, um, you're, you'll get it on the surface, but, you, but, but nothing but salt, nothing but salt will pre- penetrate to the center of the meat unless you it, it physically inject it, which some people do. But, so a brine will work through more or less osmosis and it will bring the salt all the way to the center of the meat over time. It takes time for that to do that. And what it does is it allows the meat to retain more moisture when it's cooked. All meats and fish lose moisture when cooked. It's just part of the process. But when you brine something, it retains more moisture so that it, you know, the end result is juicier, and which is why virtually every chicken you buy in the supermarket has already been brined. Incidentally, that's to cheat you also. So it increases weight. So by brining, it increases water weight of the meat item. And if you're buying by the pound, you're paying for water if you buy brine chicken. There's a little consumer now for you. Yep. You'll, it'll say it. It'll say it on the, on, the, on the label somewhere. Like, you'll look at it. It'll have like a list of ingredients, and it'll be chicken and brine. You know, or chicken and salt, and you'll see it. It'll be small there on the on the package, but it's there. I I often will buy it if I'm ever cooking pheasant breast or a whole mm-hmm. pheasant. I'll always brine it. Yeah. Yeah. I've, and I brine um, organ meats too. Uh, like really if I'm eating liver or kidneys, I always brine them because that I, well, because that, the, that the, makes the, it mild. Yes. Mild and yes. Flavor. And. Yeah. I really like livers off like a button buck or a young doe. Um, my favorite of all time was this, I shot this yearling antelope, and that was the first big game liver I've ever eaten, like liver and onions, where I actually enjoyed it. Because I'm generally okay. not a – I like bird livers, but, but big game livers, I'm like, mm. I put them in yeah, meatballs or, or chili or dirty rice or something like that. It's fine. But like eat a slice of liver, eh. That was mm-hmm. that was the exception, no. and I just yeah. posted I kidneys. I love kidneys, but you gotta soak them. You literally have to soak the piss out of them. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. For me, like you know, everybody's got their taboos and stuff, but organs are not. They're not my. Th- I mean, I'll, I'll, do you I'll not eat, eat tripe as a kid? You know what? That was one of the things my mom used to make all the time. I could not do it. Just. Uh, and she's good. I actually she makes went so good. far the as making tripe. Like, did, was it barnyardy? No, no. The flavor was amazing. Like my my mom would do a really great job with it. I don't, you know. And I and growing up here in Arizona, I've had you know, menudo yeah. all the time. Yeah, menudo. You know, with my my friends, families, and whatever. But like the actual tripe part, I never eat. I could eat the broth and whatever. You know. Goes along with well, then you just eat everything else. But, yeah, <laughs> just exactly, sort of but the I'm same not, thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm not. A, I can't do the tripe thing. I, I'm not a. So I actually went so far as to do a tripe recipe in 
buck buck moose. So I mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough to shoot a blacktail like right on a ranch. So we could take it whole to the, the shed and, and process it just like you process a domesticated animal. And like, right. you know, if I'm ever going to try venison tripe, it's going to be here. And so I did. Mm-hmm. I actually went through the whole process of cleaning the cleaning the stomach, and and it was really good. It's in the book. It's the craziest recipe in the book. It's probably it's arguably the craziest recipe I've ever put in print, but it was mm-hmm. really good. So, but you have to like tripe. Like it's I'll, it's I will tripe. I'll take it's it's Neapolitan tripe. <laughs> it's exactly how your mom made it, but with a deer with deer tripe. Okay. I'll probably have to show her that. In the book, it's super weird, but it's so good. Here's a little trick um, for making it not smell barnyardy. When you're braising it to make it tender, like three or four drops of vanilla extract in the in the braising liquid, it's Mm. magic. It it will not taste. You'll never taste the the vanilla at all. But for whatever reason, it it somehow chemically neutralizes any of that barnyard smell. Interesting. Okay. This is for anybody out there who. Is I, like, I was, yeah. I'm not. I'm, I'm going to say I'm, I'm not going to try it, but I, I will take That's you word for it. <laughs> That's fair. Just like, just like you won't eat lions, I will uh, right? eat tripe. Um, Everybody's got so, their thing. Exactly. Um, lean game meats. Is it better to cook in lard or add extra fats to the meal? I, oh, I'm lean game meats. Kind of yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> but so uh, it's hard to know what they're getting at with that question. But yeah, it's a, yeah. I mean, of course, you're going to cook with fat. Um, but uh, people used to, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, they used to lard and bard things. And so you'd lard something by this. Is, that's the whole wrap it and bacon thing. Um, I don't really do that because. It, unless I'm making poppers. Of course, poppers are by nature wrapped in yeah. bacon. That's a, because you're eating the bacon. In most right. wrapped and bacon things, you are attempting to keep the meat moisture, which really doesn't work. You just end up getting a fat layer on top of it. And so mm-hmm. it, really keeping meat, lean meats moist is to cook them properly. And if you really are nervous about it and you haven't done it a lot and you're scared about messing up this thing that you've worked so hard to to bring home and, and to feed yourself and your family, remember this. You can always cook something more. You can't uncook it. So if you're going yep. to err, err on undercooking, and then, then you'll know, you'll be able to get it exactly how you want, where if you overcook it, you're hosed. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's a good, good way to look at it. Um. This is a good question. I like this question. Um, what's your favorite cut of elk, and how do you like to prepare it? Oh, easy. That's an easy one. Skirt steak, and as arachera on tacos, hands down. So this because it, finally on an elk, the skirt steak mm-hmm. is big enough to deal with, and it's so if you don't if you're listening to this and you don't know where the skirt is, it's the inside of the flank. So flank is to backstrap as skirt is to tenderloin, and it's the same thing. So flank and loin are great cuts if they're you know, trimmed and, and treated correctly. And I love both of them on an elk and even on a deer. And, the, mm-hmm. and tenderloin and skirt being on the inside of the animal are much more tender and much more flavorful 
than their outside counterparts. And it's the, you'll, you'll notice when you're butchering an elk, there's this long, kind of a long rectangle, long skinny rectangle of meat, kind of hanging, it's a piece of the diaphragm. It's kind of hanging on the inside of the ribs. So you'll cut mm-hmm. that off and you'll notice it's got a pretty substantial um, layer of tissue, silver skin over it. You trim most of that, but not all of it off. And then the way you cook it is you cook it exactly like beef skirt steak, which is to say you marinate it and you keep it cold, cold, cold. And then you get a really roaring hot, ideally mesquite fire or any kind of smoky fire, roaring hot. And you bring it from the refrigerator to the grill and you grill it so it's nice and supercharged on both sides. And the Mm -hmm. reason why you do it cold is because it is such a skinny piece of meat you want it to be medium rare inside by the time you get the grill marks. And if, it's, if you bring it to temperature like a ribeye, it'll be overcooked. And then you chop it across the grain. It's a very, very distinctive grain. So you chop it across mm-hmm. the grain, and, and then you can either eat it as fajitas or tacos or whoever you want. But if you have to pin me to one cut, that's it. The flat iron steak is really good on an elk, which is the steak that you cut out of the... So you know how um, uh, shoulder blades have that it looks like a Y with a line in the center of it. So yep. there's, a, there's the two triangles on the front end of the shoulder. The thick triangle is the blade stake. And then if you, okay. it's got a huge layer of, of um, sinew running right down the center of it. So the flat iron is the, is the stakes that are cut off each side of that piece of sinew. And they're, okay. on an elk, they're amazing. You have to have a fairly big deer to make it worth it. Got it. Those are amazing too, and in in terms of like like long and slow neck neck mm-hmm. for the win. Because yeah. nothing makes better barbacoa or pot roast um, than than the neck. And people, a lot of people ignore the neck. It's like just, long. It's, it's like longer fiber meat. Yes. Like it's, it's it lends itself more to like the pulled porky type thing. Exactly. I feel like yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, uh, I need to, I need to shoot myself an egg. You know, get a get a cow elk this year, yourself. and yeah, get a cow elk this year because it's too late for um, it's too late for bull elk. But uh, there's a couple opportunities there. Yeah, well, if all goes well, I have uh, two bull elk tags that I'm guiding. Um, well, guiding. I'm I'm helping my family members actually, so I won't I won't call nice. it guiding. Um, so, yeah, we should have some milk in the freezer here. So maybe I love butchering extra. elk too. Butchering elk and cool. butchering moose are so cool because it's like working with a cow. You know, you get all these different fly, cuts of meat. Fly over here, December first. <laughs> yeah, I'll get I'm all sure the cuts you guys don't want. <laughs> <laughs> um. I thought this was an interesting question. If you had to live off of one recipe for the rest of your life, what would it be? One recipe? So I'm a, yeah, so I'm assuming it's one preparation, one recipe, but you can do it for multiple different types of meat. That's hmm. the way I interpreted it. That's a hard Parmesan. one. That's a really I'm kidding. Hard one. <laughs> I mean, the first... First thing that, you know, the first thing that popped in my head, um, mm-hmm. uh, Italian red sauce. Because yeah. that's, the, that's the first um, 
that is the first recipe that I mastered as a teenager, mm. and I've been making, you know, classic Italian red sauce for thirty some odd years. You know, what am I almost fifty now? And and you know, I've been making and like this is the, that is the dish that I make when I'm tired, when I'm feeling blue, when I'm not happy, and I want to make myself feel better. Is I make Italian red sauce, and I know how to do it by heart. I've never written down any recipe, and it's just it's just is. And obviously, you can make it with lots of different kinds of meats. And if you, yeah, you know, so if you're you talking really about ragu. super, yeah, if you do super Jersey Italian, it's three meats: it's Italian sausage, right. it's ground meat, and it's pork shoulder. Yeah. So my, well, I actually had it last night. My mom made it. We went to dinner at my mom's, and there was, she made beef meatballs. She doesn't do pork anymore because of me. Um, but uh, so usually there'd be pork. <laughs> well, yeah, I know. She puts uh, beef. I'm trying to think what cut of beef she puts in there. Um, oh, uh, short ribs are pretty basically. common. Um, yeah, chuck I, is actually pretty common too. It might be. It might be chuck. Um, and then, uh, well, I guess there's some pork in there because she puts sausage, sausage in there too. So, um, yeah, you could do a lot of stuff with that. For yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's it, I, I'm sure I could overthink it, but the first thing that popped in my head <laughs> is that. So, I, I, I mean, hell, I ate that like probably twice a week when I was growing up anyway, so. <laughs> then I would bring, I would bring meatball subs to, to uh, school afterwards. So I have a funny story about meatball from subs. From the leftovers. So I used to eat meatball subs religiously, right? And, you know, the issue with the meatball sub is to how to eat it without it, the last meatball popping out the back of the, su- the sandwich, right? So <laughs> it, for years, like, I'm dealing with this particular weird problem with physics. And then I'm at a pork store in Patchogue, Long Island. And, you know, my buddy's ordering a meatloaf sandwich. And I'm ordering – I just decided I wanted a meatball sandwich today. And he's like, I told him about the problem with the meatball popping out the back of the, the hoagie roll. And he's like, well, get it. Get a meatball sandwich, you, you mook. I'm like, what are you talking about? I hate meatloaf. Because remember, I told you my mom's meatloaf is a war crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know what meatloaf is? It's a giant fucking meatball. <laughs> and like a yeah. light went off in my head. I'm like, oh my God, you're right. Like Italian meatloaf is a gi- it's like a loaf of meatball caught into yep. slices. And then you serve that on a sandwich and you're, you get the same effect. It's got the marinara sauce and the meat. And it doesn't fall off the back of your sandwich. Like, oh my God, this is amazing. <laughs> yep, yep. It's so, so my mom's meatloaf. I like meatloaf sandwiches my, forever, ever since. Meatloaf, my mom's meatloaf was basically, like you said, a meatball with mozzarella inside the center of it. And the same sauce that she made meatballs with went on top of it. There was no ketchup or anything like that. Like, right. you know, you, you, you see in other types of meatloaf. Yeah. That's so. why my, my, the meatloaf I have on, uh, in my books and on the website is an Italian meatloaf. Nice. Um, this is another good question. What's the best preparation or best recipe you find for kids to eat deer? Probably ground meat. I would say like ground, burger of some sort, whether it's an actual burger or meatballs or meatloaf or, you know, taco meat, um, uh, virtually, I don't know anybody who won't eat that. Right. You know, I've made like yeah. I've literally made beaver burgers, 
ground mm-hmm. beaver hind legs with some pork fat to make burgers, and everyone's like, oh, it's amazing. What is it? Like beaver. And the jokes ensued, you know. <laughs> but like, if you have ground ground anything, it's it's ground anything. And if you have picky kids, there's your there's your that's the easiest one. Yeah, I find that my kids really enjoy. I do like burritos with again mm-hmm. with ground meat, um, and I'm, you know, it's all in the seasoning and the and I. Uh, you know, put tomatoes on an open flame and char them, and then I throw them in, and you know, they're all blistered and whatever mm-hmm. into the mix, and and I actually toss the cheese in with the meat instead of just laying. Yeah, it on helps top bind it. And it, and it, it yeah, yeah, it helps. It helps exactly. bind it so that when you bite it, it doesn't all crumble out on you. Yeah, that, and and I feel like it's a more distributed flavor of. And, and it, I don't know, the kids seem to like that one a lot. Um, what are your thoughts on marinades, and what's a good rule of thumb for marinating deer? So marinades, I actually, if you, if you Google the words mar- venison marinades, you'll see my article on that subject. But I'll, the short version is uh, marinades are really good for thin cuts of meat because marinades don't mm-hmm. penetrate. So... You know, the skirt steak I just mentioned, flank steak, mm-hmm. uh, anything skinny is going to work really well. And the other option is just like if you do sauerbraten, like German sauerbraten, you're really marinating in, in mold wine with spices for days and days and days and days and days. And that almost pickles it. So they're there, but don't think that they're going to tenderize meat because they don't. Um, what they do is the acid in a marinade. I mean, the, the difference between a marinade and a brine is brine is salt-based and marinade is acid-based or enzyme-based. Right. Like some people will marinate in, in pineapple juice or papaya. Yeah. Both contain an enzyme that makes meat mushy. So that, you, that mushy outer sixteenth of an inch that, you're, that your mind is saying, oh, it makes meat more tender. It really doesn't. Mm-hmm. But that said, you know, if, if it makes you happy, go for it. Yeah. Is there a time length that you'd say for acid-based versus brining? Like, I mean, of course, it also always depends on the size of the, you know, the meat and all that. But yeah, like so, I, I feel the general like time difference. Yes, acid-based has has an absolute time limit where um, where uh, you know, brine <laughs> does two. Okay, so acid-based is this. I would never marinate, say, a flank, skate, flank steak or a skirt steak or, or any kind of normal steak for more than a day. And 12 hours is probably better. Right. That said, you see an overnight marinade a lot. And I, I wouldn't go much longer than overnight. Now, brines, there's two kinds of brines. There's a brine where you've got, like, you know, a quarter cup of kosher salt plus a quart of, of water, and that's a pretty standard brine. And that's fine. Um, but you can oversalt something with that. The other way right. to do it is to not brine it so much as salt it down, which is you'll hear people refer to this as a dry brine, but brine by, by definition has water. So it's not really a dry brine, but you're salting something. And if you salt something at 1% or 2% of the weight of the item, mm-hmm. you will never have it too salty. So in that, that's okay. called an EQ or an equalization cure. And so let's say I've got a length of backstrap. Let's say we've got a 
a foot-long length of deer backstrap. It's ready to rock, and I want it to be salted perfectly. What I would do is I would weigh it in grams, because it's easier to do the calculation that way. Weigh it in grams, and then one and a half, one to one and a half percent of that weight, do that with fine salt, not coarse salt. Okay. And then salt it all over, and then if it was me, I would vacuum seal it and throw it in the back of the fridge for like three days. So okay. what that does is, A, I'm erring on the, on the side of curing it longer. B, because that makes sure that the salt gets all the way to the center. B, it will never be too salty because you've only added enough salt to make it pleasantly salty. Now, if you just coated it in salt and you vacuum sealed it and put it in there in three days, it could become very salty and unedible. This is a, okay. it's a, it's a, uh, a charcuterie, it's a salumiere's trick of equaliz- equalization cure. It's what you do with hams. And, but hams are 25 to sometimes 3% salt, and so that gets you that salty hammy thing. If you're just doing it to cook on the grill or in a pan or in a broiler, that 1% to 1.5% salt by weight. And, and you don't have to have a vacuum sealer. You can uh, put it in a freezer bag and then push all the air out of it and put it in the back of the fridge. And that would work too. Nice. Okay, I I really want to start uh, experimenting a little bit with Brian, with Brian's and stuff like that because I, I don't ever really do much of that. I've I've, I've done quite a bit of marinating, but uh, the brining it's a it's a new uh, horizon for me. Try it. Try it with a piece of backstrap and just what, just what I was talking about, and you'll be shocked at how amazing it is. Yeah, I uh, I, I got a, another buddy of mine that does a lot of uh, smoking and stuff like that, and he's always doing brine stuff. And I just uh, my my thing is, you know what? I, I never plan ahead long enough for what I'm going to eat. Um, that's why I hate frozen meat. That's why I hate getting meat out of the freezer because then I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat this in two days, so let me pull this out of the freezer and defrost it. I can fix that for you. Easy. Do you vacuum seal things? I do not. You need to. So you need to vacuum seal things and for the record, I am not endorsed or paid or whatever, whatever by any vacuum seal maker. So nobody's giving me any money to tell you this. Um, I at, because I hunt so much and I fish so much, I actually sprung for a real chamber vac. You don't have to do that. But you do need to vacuum seal things if you want to use this, this cool trick. I have the same problem as you. I will often, it'll be a Tuesday, I'm like, what do I want to eat today? I'm like, eh, I don't know. But I can reach into the freezer and grab something that's been vacuum sealed, and I fill my soup pot full of cold water. And then you throw okay. that vacuum-sealed object in the cold water, and it will thaw out within sometimes a half an hour. Depends on the size of the thing. But if it's, let's say, again, we'll go back to the backstrap. Let's say if it's a foot-long length of backstrap, it will be thawed out in a, less than an hour. And that solves your problem. Nice. Actually, kind of do that already from, work, from working in yeah, the I mean, it's, Yes, exactly. Like, so in a restaurant where you don't care about water, and you're in Arizona, so water's precious, and I'm in California where water is also precious, but if you're, if you're in a place that rains a lot, well, what you want to do is you want to let the water run very slowly in that pot so you have circulating water. 
and that will that will fall out even faster. Gotcha. Nice. Um, well, I think that was all the questions we had. Were you? Uh, mm-hmm. You have any uh, closing thoughts or anything you want to share that we didn't sure. cover? Sure. I think. Uh, I mean, I think at one. I mean, just to to give a plug to the site a bit. Virtually everything we talked about is on huntgathercook.com. Uh, and if it's not there, it's in any one of my books, which are available on Amazon or on my website and all that kind of good stuff. But I think the overarching thing that everybody needs to remember when you're dealing with wild game is two things, really. The first is really super easy to remember. Chances are you're cooking the tender parts of your animals too much and the tough parts too little. That's a truism that I've seen over and over and over with all different game animals. You know, they're cooking breasts or, or backstrap too little or too much, you know, and going over medium. And they're cooking shanks and shoulder and neck or legs, not enough. And so I'll hear things like, oh, well, this goose leg is just too tough, you can't eat it. Or this turkey leg is too tough, I can't eat it. Sure you can, you just didn't cook it long enough. And, oh, I hate duck. Well, you cooked it too much. So you cook your breast too much. So that's, that's a truism. And the other one is to embrace chaos. So as cooks, whether you're in a kitchen, professional kitchen or your own kitchen, we're conditioned to know that if you cook a piece of beef or pork or chicken or salmon at X temperature for Y time, you'll get a result. Well, that's just not true with wild game animals because you have so many variables in the wild world that you do not have with domesticated livestock that you have to be a bit more aware of of the animal itself and to keep your wits about you. So, for example, I hunt ducks a lot. What species of duck is it? A spoonie is not the same thing as a canvasback. It's not the same thing as a Canada goose. So you've got all of that variability right off the get-go. Then, okay, where is this bird from. So an example is gadwall south of the city of Sacramento where I live are notoriously stinky. Gadwall north of the city of Sacramento where I live are notoriously amazing. So that's all diet-based. And then the final thing Mm -hmm. you have to deal with is age. The oldest Canada goose ever recorded was 31 years old. It was banded. 31, right? So is your Canada Crazy. goose 31 or is it the young of the year? And you're going to cook it differently that way. So there's all of this variability that you deal with with big game and small game that you just have to be chill about it. You have to be like, okay, if it's tough, cook it longer. If it's, you'll see it with pigs a lot. So somebody will shoot a 200-pound pig and they'll think that its backstrap is going to be as tender as something they buy from Costco, which is not. It just isn't. Right. It's not. Sorry. <laughs> and nope. you have to, you know, you have to adjust for that in your cooking. Yeah. No, that's good information. Yeah, I was, I didn't know that until recently, how old, like, geese and, um, it's actually, I, I figured it out. I learned it, uh, uh, somebody was talking, talking to me about, uh, um, Oh my God! I can't think of the words right now. Cranes. Um, oh yeah. You're going to hunt them. Which which one? Which one? Cranes are you going to hunt this year? Sandhills in uh, Oklahoma. Sandhills. Thank you. Sandhill crane. 
and um, yeah, somebody was telling me like, yeah, I was like a 25 year old bird or something like that. I'm like, what? I had like no like no clue that they even lived that long, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, the oldest things that we eat as as uh, outdoorsmen were our waterfowl, and mm-hmm. as anglers, it's a certain species of, of bass-like bass-like fish, like rockfish. You know, Pacific rockfish can be 80 years old. Shit, not all of them, but certain species can be. And <laughs> trippy, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I knew I knew bear. You know, bear can can get up there in age. Moose. Yeah. Moose can be over 12. Yeah, but still, see, 12 is still like, you could do 12 on a deer if it had the right conditions, you know? You could, yeah. In captivity. <laughs> but they usually don't last that long because they're so high right. strung, they die of stress. <laughs> they are high strung animals. Yeah. Pronghorn, yeah. too. Pronghorn are super nervous animals. Yeah, yeah. Well, awesome, man. I'm looking forward to uh, to Havelina hunting. Uh, maybe yep. I'll catch up with you when you're here for your for your quail hunt. Absolutely. But yeah, I'll be that you're, first you're gonna week be, of, uh, I'll be down in Sonoida for the opener at the uh, the uh-huh. the Arizona Quail Festival, and that's the seventh uh-huh. uh, Saturday. And then I'll be I'll be in the state the whole rest of the week chasing various various critters. Okay, so that is the week that basically, when you get there, I should be finishing up with that elk hunt. So there you go. Maybe uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll pull out some some fresh elk meat and do something. That'd be fun. Spectacular at the house. Throw a big barbecue. I could I could get something. into that. All right, buddy. Well, uh, I will. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. And uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. And once again, uh, give us the website so uh, listeners can go check it out. Sure. It is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, and the website is huntgathercook.com. And I'm on, I do a lot on Instagram as huntgathercook. And uh, you can find my books wherever books are sold. Just look up me. I'm Hank Shaw. And other than the FBI chief in Boston, I'm the only Hank Shaw. So you'll, it's, I'm pretty easy to find because I'm not in the FBI. <laughs> wanted by the FBI but not in it possibly <laughs> alright man I will talk to you All right. thanks a lot thanks a lot bye hey guys if you're looking for a really good hunt um, every year uh, my outfitting service days in the wild we we take out a handful of clients for uh, deer and javelina in the archery season and um, rifle seasons here Um, it's too late to get a rifle tag now for for deer but the draw is opening for javelina and if you want to get a rifle tag for javelina um, or you'd like to come out and do a combination archery uh, javelina hunt archery deer and javelina hunt um, give me a shout hit me up on instagram or facebook or, or hit me up on the blog or go to our website, daysinthewild.com, and uh, contact us through there. We can talk about it and build you um, your hunt of your, I don't know, I want to say of your dreams, but uh, <laughs> definitely an awesome time and uh, lots of action. 
and a really true Western experience where you're getting to do a lot of spot and stalk, um, getting to navigate the mountains. It's a, it's a good time. Great weather that time of year. Most of our hunts take place in December and January for the deer and javelina combination. And if you're coming just for javelina, uh, those are typically in February. So uh, give us a shout, and um, we'll put together a great hunt for you. Thanks.